You are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And each episode, I present a book that will change your life. Well, hello, hello. How are you doing? I won't deny that warmer days and sunny spells have made such a nice difference, and I hope you're also enjoying the change. Over the past nine episodes of this podcast, we've had the chance to take a look at particular cuisines and some fascinating relationships between food and philosophy, politics, agriculture, nutrition, and cultural studies. Over the past nine episodes of this podcast, we've had the chance to take a look at particular cuisines and some fascinating relationships between food and philosophy, politics, agriculture, nutrition and cultural studies. Today's episode closes the first season of Hungry Books with a book that pushes the conventional understanding of linear history and instead explains the conditions that led to the major shifts, transitions and ways in which we have changed our relationship with food and how the different paradigms we've created have shaped our history, present and indeed future. Since its publication back in 2009, this book, An Edible History of Humanity by Tom Standage, has become a staple reference in food studies, collecting praises and endorsements for its refreshingly innovative approach. Twelve years later, many of the most critical discussions in the book still resonate as we have seen how climate change, political turmoil and how the pandemic have made it all too clear that we haven't quite yet dealt with food insecurity, taken enough actions to fix our food systems and we see over and over again the political, ideological and economic weaponization of food policies. In the notes of this episode, you can find the link to get this book, contact Tom Standage, the author, and of course, the links to connect with me on Instagram, Twitter, and old school email. I won't keep you waiting because we have quite a lot to cover today. So let's get on with the show. It is very curious that historical studies were remarkably disinterested in food as a quote-unquote proper subject of research. The reasons are many, but putting it in simple terms, the very fact that eating is an essential necessity led to the notion that food was only a practical matter, unavoidable and simple, like sleeping or wearing clothes to protect us from the environment. On the other hand, we have seen how, for ancient civilizations, Food often had a special mystical or divine meaning, making it part of rituals like we saw in the previous episode with the fantastic beer celebrations in ancient Egypt, or the Christian transubstantiation of wheat turned flour turned holy bread. And it really wasn't until the first half of the 20th century 
when historians began developing a broad enough strategy to encompass the formal study of the transformations, management, uses, meanings, solutions and relationships we've had with food since the so-called dawn of times. Obviously, covering agricultural aspects, physiology, medicine, religion, politics, economy and many other layers is a hugely complex and big task. And to this day, we still continue working on it. The book I chose today, An Edible History of Humanity by Tom Standage, offers a series of passages that together tell the story of how food has been at the center of mankind's most transformative moments. From inspiring societal organization that enabled our ancestors to completely change their lifestyle, create geopolitical regions, transform the landscape, to develop technology, fuel conflicts, expansion and conquest, making it very clear that there is no such thing as one history of humanity, but that during all of our existence, the need to secure food has shaped our cultures and civilizations. This work is a must-read for anyone who wants to start taking seriously their historical curiosity on food and build a multidimensional understanding about the role of food across time. And you're probably wondering what kind of creature wrote this monster of a book. Well, let me tell you now a little bit about the author. Tom Standage is a current deputy director of The Economist and has been a history and technology journalist for many years. His past work can be read at The Guardian and The Daily Telegraph. Standage studied engineering and computing in Oxford and has published and edited over a dozen books, including The Victorian Internet, A History of the World in Six Glasses, and this very book I'm reviewing today, An Edible History of Humanity. So what business does an engineer have writing about food history, you might wonder? Well, over the years, I have found that it is often those who cross over from one discipline to another that tend to do a better job of finding complex connections and different ways to understand things, also often do a pretty creative work at explaining it. In Standard's own words, his speciality is the use of historical analogy in science, technology and business writing. And boy, isn't that a winning combination. The book is divided in six parts, with a total of 12 chapters that explore in a sort of chronological order the history of humanity from the moment we transitioned from a nomadic existence to a sedentary life in the Neolithic period, all the way to our modern-day challenges and crossroads, with an emphasis on the motivations behind the shaping of our food systems. So, in short, Standard analyzes how food facilitated or incited transformative leaps that have shaped civilizations. The roadmap ahead is made of six different parts and it looks something like this. So first, at the dawn of the first agricultural societies, farming had a key role at accelerating organization and division of labor. On the other hand, it prompted the creation of early engineering for water supply and agricultural systems, grain storage, and the technology for milling and cooking. 
When our distant ancestors mastered a regular production of edible crops, the surplus allowed them to start a complex economy, develop a political control over fertile territories, and enabled the emergence of power structures that regulated production and access to food supplies. After civilizations took shape, nations expanded and different forms of transport were invented. Trade routes covered the known world. The roads and routes that once moved foods enabled cross-cultural exchange that accelerated the cross-pollination of science, architecture, gastronomy and religion. So it was a crave for luxury goods that initially connected the Far East with Europe as spices and exotic items traveled by caravan and sea from Asia and the Middle East, which served to expand people's understanding of the cultures and geography of the known world. And by the 16th century, the first colonial outposts had proved beyond doubt that the Earth was but a small spinning sphere in the universe, and the race to take control over the prosperous territories kept Europe pretty busy over the following 300 years. The impact that the Colombian exchange had transforming politics, environment, economies, diets and societies had an equally lasting effect in all continents. And while all world nations thought they had brought civilization to the colonies, the biggest change for them was yet to happen. And it would be humble crops like potatoes and corn that would feed and fuel the largest technological revolutions. And last, global interdependence also meant longer food supply chains and weaker food systems. The 19th century saw the research of the large-scale use of food as a war weapon, and the once effective simple blockage of supplies gave way in the 20th century to the ideological weaponization of food during the Cold War. Today, our debates and worries range from food sovereignty, insecurity, the use of GMOs, trade wars and environmental imbalances. So now let's have a look at some of the highlights from each section in the book that I've prepared for you. In chapter one, the edible foundations of civilization, we are presented with the idea that there's absolutely nothing natural about the domestication of crops and farming. And that prepares us to accept that even our most basic foods are the result of accumulative technological changes. This means that while we might have become accustomed to the look of orange carrots and 30 centimeter long ears of corn, there's nothing simple or natural about them. So for instance, the ancestor of modern day corn was a wild grass, not too different from ancient wheat or barley and no longer than 10 centimeters long with only two rows of rock-hard kernels. And if we have learned anything from Darwin's work is that evolution and domestication are incredibly long and complex processes that require constant conditioning. The domestication of a plant means that for literally thousands of years, and thousands of agricultural cycles, 
the seeds of plants were hand-picked to keep the traits that people judged to be more advantageous, like size, flavor, strength, texture, and so on. This old-school genetic manipulation not only changed plants themselves, they also changed the soil, landscape, and our diets and metabolism. But more importantly, corn exemplifies better than any other crop how mutually dependent we became of a single food to base our diets, and also how much we've altered these plants that they can't survive without our intervention. You see, for nearly 12,000 years, we've altered this plant, corn that is, so much that it is literally unable to reproduce itself and survive without our hand. But we can also draw similarities with other crops, for instance, Asia's dependency on rice or Europe and the Middle East's uh, preference for wheat. Begging the question, is depending on a single crop the best strategy for survival? You know the answer, right? We are seldom invited to evaluate the cost of opportunity that these represented. Proto-farmers realized that keeping animals for work and as a source of food and having a stock of seeds meant that they could finally stop migrating. But the author's point is that at no moment in history did anyone make a conscious decision to adopt an entirely new lifestyle because it was so gradual. Also, there is nothing natural about farming as we put at peril our own survival by actively contributing to deforestation, environmental destruction, and the genetic modification of plants and animals we consume, and all the consequences that come with that. And with this, we have created all sorts of mutants, the author says, that do not exist in nature and cannot survive without us. And it is very rich that today we question the moral implications of artificial food production when creating unnatural foods is at the genesis of all civilizations. Food and social structure. The author here invites us to reflect on the fact that we absolutely take for granted and see as a natural fact of life that all societies have to be stratified and organized the way they are. But really, for most of our human existence, our hunter-gathering and proto-farming ancestors were actually the original egalitarian societies. And not because they had any ideological inclination to do so, of course not, but because it was a practical and logical thing to do. So then the adoption of farming forced humans to make profound changes in their organization and created the division of labor. Now, a bit you have read and perhaps even agreed with the idea that food is something that brings us together, allows social interaction, bonding and encourages positive dynamics like sharing and cooperation. And all of that is true, of course. However, it is until very recently that we have developed such positive and a little bit romanticized view on food. Because the truth is that we have used food and specifically access to food as a way to create distinction, inflict punishment, or has been used to divide and control so farming and food production led to the transformation and creation of new social structures. 
This meant the acceleration of adoption or creation of technology that led to an excessive accumulation of food, and with that came power. And here we are provided with a magnificent example of the Kuhn tribe from the Kalahari Desert between northern Namibia and southern Angola in Africa. So in this place, a Canadian anthropologist studied how these people, a fiercely egalitarian society, actively discourages attitudes of arrogance and aloofness and instead reward cooperation, mutual acknowledgement of their skills and foster mutual support, which does not equal obligation, meaning that everyone has equal opportunity to serve their community. But of course, there is always a catch, and that is that in the 19th century, anthropology romanticized this idea of the so-called noble savage and misconstrued hunter-gatherer societies at such extent that even Marx and Engels developed their own ideas based on this distorted idealization of primitive communism. What they failed to see is that with a constantly scarce and uncertain food supply, violence, infanticide and even cannibalism were a constant practice to maintain order. So what then is the real advantage of a stratified sedentary society that enables few individuals to hold over the control of the entire food resources of a community? Well, we could write several PhD dissertations and not really get to the bottom of it, but the ability to amass control of land and surplus of foods meant the possibility to trade acquired tools, supplies, and enable the creation of a complex economy. And thus, we were able to go from chiefdoms to actual civilizations. So what started with a small farming community can become a society led by one person who is able to organize others to create strategies for defense, distribution, enforced rules, and even lead people to take over neighboring territories. When this dynamic scaled up, we can see the rise of Mesopotamia's city-states, Egyptian dynasties, and the monumental architecture that gives us plenty of evidence of these stratified societies and the power bestowed upon their leaders to administer, defend, and fight to ensure the peace and prosperity of their societies. Until very recently in our history, food has been used as a currency. In all ancient civilizations of Mesoamerica and South America, until the arrival of European colonizers, the economy of indigenous empires ran on tributes paid in kind, and most of them consisted on food. In fact, across the ancient world, myths, rituals and regions had all in common the attribution of totemic qualities to food substances. So rulers had to be presented with edible tributes, gods had to be fed with offers of food and life-giving substances like blood and flesh, and pretty much all around the world, cultures have created many complex rules about what is allowed and what is forbidden to eat and created their own ideas of transubstantiation that plays a major role at conferring sacred powers to food substances by means of practicing rites. In part three, global highways of food, 
The section begins with the perpetual fascination we've had for condiments, or indeed for spices, a word that in its etymology makes it very clear that anything that comes in contact with them will become special. The uses of spices has primarily been linked to cuisine and beauty products. They make our food taste good and our bodies feel and smell good. And even some spices are considered to have health benefits. But that's not really the reason why we use them. So why have we spent centuries investing time, resources and effort in sourcing spices? The crepe for spices prompt the naval global race, trade wars, colonialism, slavery and environmental destruction. Why? While we have made a huge complicated affair out of it, the reason behind it shows how simple creatures we really are. The commodification and inflation of the cost of a scarce product that is non-essential signals power, signals wealth and signals status for all those people who can afford them and shows others their place in their social structure. So while it is safe to assume that in all continents people discovered and used the available spices for the same purpose, we only seem to have written evidence of that from ancient Greece, when spices were extensively used for culinary purposes, a practice copied by the Romans, who did horrendous acts of culinary heresy, that actually survived well after the fall of the Roman Empire and found new heights in the medieval period when at wealthy tables more of everything was better. But the important thing about the spice trade via maritime routes and inland roads is that they are the real predecessors of global trade, or at least they connected the world as Europeans viewed it and brought the flavor of the southeast of Asia to European tables and the scents of Arabia to Chinese temples. And where spices went, also did languages, beliefs, costumes and other luxury items like pottery, fabrics and jewellery that inspired an arts and crafts revolution. Moreover, on a practical level, that also meant that a huge technological transformation happened since traders and sailors needed more and better vessels, reliable maps and faster routes, cartographers needed better measurement instruments and more information which prompted the need to become better astronomers, geographers and also more sophisticated mathematicians and engineers. Almost Every competing region had their own sailors and explorers leading this race, but the increasingly intense contact also brought some devastating unforeseen consequences, like diseases in the form of viral and bacterial plagues, and little did we know that hundreds of years later we'd be battling the same ignorance and recklessness as medieval folk who believed all sorts of nonsense about epidemiology. But I digress. (laughs) Inevitably, we arrive to the unfortunate case of Columbus's overconfidence. Had Columbus not decided to ignore or simply not being smart enough to do his research, he would have realized that there were more continents than most people assumed. And it is commonly said that one of the things that he wanted to prove is that the Earth was spherical. But really, by then, it was pretty much accepted that this was the case. 
So what he really wanted to find was a faster route from Europe to India. But like anyone who has written an essay or thesis knows that the quality of your work will be determined by that of the literature you use as a reference. For instance, Charles Darwin decided to start with Alexander von Humboldt's monumental work as his main reference, and we know how far that allowed him to go. But Mr. Columbus settled for a much lower bar and used Marco Polo's heavily embellished memoirs as a starting point. That's like using Willy Wonka's approach to do the business plan for a confectionery shop, honestly. Anyway, Columbus couldn't sell his plans to Portugal, but the Spanish monarchs were quite pumped up in the run-up of the Reconquista and expulsion of Muslim and Jewish population from Spain. So he saw the chance to play with the idea that if he succeeded, he will ensure a very wealthy bounty for the crown. And who doesn't like the sound of that? So long story short, we know he ended in the Caribbean and realized his mistake. The actual spices he found had little to do with their Asian and Middle Eastern counterparts, but nonetheless equally exotic and full of commercial promise. And what he brought to the Americas in exchange for all this were the seeds of empire and bloody colonization. Part 4. Food, Energy and Industrialization Inching towards the 17th century, the author takes us to the restoration of the English monarchy. We are presented with a painting where Charles is standing in front of a garden with his two dogs and kneeling next to him is the royal gardener John Rose presenting him with a pineapple, the fruit of kings, as it was known. Pineapples continued enjoying a high status as a symbol of power and luxury well into the Georgian period. The fact that Brazilian pineapples were grown at several royal botanical gardens in Europe was symptomatic of another revolution, the transformation of natural sciences. The true global commerce that resulted from the colonial expansion of Europe into the Americas meant not only that fashionable spices found their way into pantries worldwide, but also fruits and crops that would change forever the economic, political and dietary future of Europe. The imports of potatoes and corn were as transcendent in Europe as the introduction of cattle and sugarcane in the Americas. Albeit with sugarcane also came colonial slavery and the systematic trafficking of African people transferred to cotton, sugarcane and eventually coffee and cocoa plantations. Of course, there is the big case to make for potatoes in Europe. And do not worry, the next season we'll have plenty of papas. But for now, what Standage wants us to have clear is that when foreign crops were introduced in other parts of the world, they weren't accompanied by the cultural context, farming techniques and culinary use and process knowledge. Hence, we see famous cases of cooks preparing soups with potato leaves and intoxicating every guest with it. Or people destroying potatoes because they grow under the soil and only, of course, Satan and his demons can exist outside of God's watching eye. But the fact is that humble potatoes actually felt quite at home in Northern Europe and especially in the British Isles, where the humid and cold soil reminded them of their native Andean land. 
in spite of religious fears and other ignorant prejudices, potatoes proved to be a most welcome solution for a starved and malnourished population that saw in this spot a much-needed relief. The author makes the case that the success of Britain's Industrial Revolution had as much to do with mechanical ingenuity as to having enough and more diverse and cheap food to feed the millions of workers who migrated from rural areas to the cities to become the workforce of industries. Sugar and tea imported from the colonies produced by enslaved people became a staple for the masses, and potatoes soon took over wheat and bread as a main source of carbohydrates. Of course, nothing lasts forever, and the widespread potato fungus that devastated crops, hopes and lives caused one of the biggest and most devastating famines in Europe, specifically in Ireland, affecting millions of human lives. Corn had its own light spot moment also, uh, in this case in China, where its arrival meant a very welcomed alternative to rice cultivation with a much better yield and that resulted in better nutrition. The population went from 140 million to 400 million people in only 200 years. Part 5. Food as a weapon. Tom Standage is quite right when he says that the use of food in warfare is arguably more savage than swords and certainly more cruel and slow. To be fair, he makes it very clear that there's nothing new about it. We've been making each other suffer and inflicted violence upon each other since the dawn of time, which again is a good way to reconsider the romantic idea that food only brings our nourishing selfless nature. The case of wars perfectly illustrate the need to have a seamless food system that can enable a marching army to succeed. Pharaohs knew it, Alexander the Great knew it, ancient Romans, medieval crusaders, conquistadors, they all knew it. And nothing has changed ever since. In fact, back in episode 2, I feature, if you remember, a book entirely dedicated to the study of Britain's strategy to feed army and nation during World War II. Wars indeed accelerate technology and techniques to process, preserve and transfer food that are now very much part of our lives, from tinned food, dried and powdered foodstuffs, preservatives, industrial farming and multivitamins are some of the many products we deem as vital today. And this takes us to the most poignant part of the book, Perhaps because it is so close to us that in this day and age there is absolutely no excuse that can redeem any government for allowing its nation or vast swathes of it to suffer from food scarcity or even worse, prolonged famines. And at this point, Tom quotes one of my favorite contemporary economists, Nobel Prize recipient Amartya Sen, who declared that the terrible history of famines is directly linked to the regimes of dictators from China to the Soviet Union and I will add today Venezuela. Because the absence of a self-regulating democracy and the key role of a free press, abuses of power are more likely to occur unchallenged. Which reminds me, again, that in episode 6 I gave more context to understanding food security and strategies to build a functional food system in my revision of the book Empires of Food by E.D. Fraser and Andrew Remus. 
And this is where things get a little bit darker. Standage does a very good job at also pointing the finger at the use of international aid and specifically food relief as a political weapon. And yes, he uses those words. Not diplomatic leverage or soft power, but he says that food has been used as a political weapon by governments and NGOs that used food to infiltrate, influence and gain trust and control of people, crops or governments for their own advantage. But double moral standards are not exclusive to politics. The food industry has also been deep into shady practices for many centuries, from pious English Quakers who knowingly used cocoa produced by enslaved people to Nestle's blind eye to environmentally and socially devastating agricultural practices. Yes, there is some progress being made about fair trade and bird-friendly farming and dolphin-free tuna, but the fact is that there is no way that the large-scale production of a crop, farming or fishing, won't have great costs for the planet and vast sways of the global population. But we are simply too comfortable pretending to be oblivious to this. And so we arrive to the last part of the book, which is part six, Food, Population and Development. In this section, the author explores the fierce competition to produce more efficient ways to avoid soil deterioration by means of extensive use of fertilizers mixed with chemical pest control and genetic manipulation of seeds to ensure consistency in yield, flavor and aspect of crops. And the downside is well known to us and this means that we have become more dependent and we have a more fragile set of ecosystems also means the loss of heritage crops, monopolies of seed suppliers and fertilizer producers. So the paradox of plenty is, while we produce more foods, they are less nutritious and more damaging to the world and our health. And it really doesn't make much difference if you are an omnivore or a vegan. Don't fool yourself thinking your tofu is made from free-range soybeans. We are all complicit, knowingly or not. Our modern societies are way more complex than those farming little communes from 12,000 years ago. However, we have managed to disenfranchise and undervalue the work and lives of those upon we depend the most, farmers. And the author ends on a crucial note. While movements like slow food, promoting urban farming and foraging is all well and good, if we don't take actual steps to ensure change in the national and international policies to be as mindful as our Neolithic ancestors and safely store for the future, we will only see our problems worsen. Food is much more than an essential ingredient in human history. We simply wouldn't exist without it. So taking food production issues seriously is our only way to ensure our survival. I have read this book exactly three times, uh, each for a different purpose. And every time I have taken different things with me. While, of course, there is a dark undertone, specifically, you know, towards the last chapters, it is actually rather unavoidable to have these discussions. I mean, it is meant to open our eyes and also show actual strategies as well and lines of inquiry to understand uh, the complexities of our relationship to food. Of course, I've done my own part at curating the highlights. 
uh, certain aspects of each part of this book. But I think you see how Standage shows a brilliant way to approach food history from a completely multidisciplinary strategy and allows us to distance ourselves from the romanticized ideas we might have or even, you know, partial ways to understand the history of humanity as a supposed clean and linear uh, evolutionary process. So I have really tried to choose some of the many great things that the author in this book achieve. And here are the five reasons why I think you should read this book. Number one. I really enjoyed the shift of perspective that the author proposes when looking with bewildered eyes to our own history and simply ask why, <laughs> instead of taking things for granted. One big handicap we have regarding history as a discipline is how for centuries narratives have been created to fit whichever argument scholars, governments or power structures in general wants us to believe. And one of the big contributions that I think this book does is providing all these rich contexts to take us away from the old beaten path of falling into commonplaces of oversimplification. <laughs> Two, while I genuinely celebrate the rise of websites, magazines, articles, programs that have popularized food traditions and the diversity that there's out there, by presenting information in a very accessible way, the downside is precisely that often information is the way to simplify it and doesn't even has the chance to make any impact by changing perspectives or challenging narratives. And, well, Netflix's food series, Munchies, Gastroscura, and similar projects have their own merit. But let's not kid ourselves thinking that they equal in-depth research. I suppose the pendulum has swung from really dense academic research that never reaches the light of day and the reader's diest version of it. And I think this book does a fantastic job at convincing people to fall in love again with proper long reads. And he shows that we can become better at producing high quality and accessible works and better consumers of critical writing. <laughs> Number three, I love the fact that this book makes political and economic history so enticing. Between you and me, it took me a while to get economical history through my thick skull all those years ago when I had to read Ricardo and Malthus and Adam Smith, but it really helps making sense of them when you apply those principles to a specific problem, for example, food systems or our historical relationship to food. Standage is not really concerned about what academic puritanism thinks of this. After all, he's an engineer who brings what I view is a systematic approach of the study of food as a cultural phenomena, and he really distances himself from conventional approaches to look at how food has shaped us over the course of time and how we have transformed our food and our world in the process. And that, my friends, is what makes a difference between amateur writing and Premier League research. <laughs> Numero cuatro. It has been decades since I gave up reading fiction on a regular basis, except for a couple notable exceptions. Who needs made-up stories when you have books like this? Admittedly, I'm a history junkie, 
And as such, I have preferences. And I love that this book is not a simple, naive and boring linear history of consecutive events. It's rather an analysis of the transformations of social structures, ingenuity and problem solving of our nutritional needs. But I think the best Easter egg Standage leaves for us is the much needed close up to the historical use of food as a political weapon of control and punishment. Because very few books actually address this, and to be fair, we can hardly expect less from the deputy director of The Economist. <laughs> And last, number five, I like how from the very beginning of the book, Standage is in our face telling us that what we think is normal is just an illusion. And I mean, he doesn't come across like a 1990s goth Morpheus in PVC clothing, but he opens our eyes to see beyond our very domesticated lives and think about the things that had happened from the ancient hunter-gatherer societies to our days. Indeed, we have made great achievements since we took upon farming, but it's also true that 12,000 years after, there are millions of people whose lives depend on basic farming and live in very precarious conditions, not because they've chosen to, but as a result of the accumulative effect of colonialism, corruption, inequality, corporate greed, and all the many other ways in which we can see the failures of our civilization. Now, with all this in mind, what should you expect after reading this book? I think it will first take care of whatever unconscious cultural entitlement you might have, I mean, we all do, about your relationship to food and might scare you a bit to realize how much we take it for granted, both as a society and on an individual level. Although we might be especially sensible to it now that we have to solve our every need during this almost year of lockdown. So all the more reason to go for it and question our assumptions about food with this critical read. Will this book radicalize you? <laughs> I don't think so, unless you are already on your way. But what it will do is that it will educate you and broaden your understanding of the ways in which we've turned an unavoidable necessity like breathing or sleeping into the core structure of our history as a species. There you have it, another great book to add to your list. And guess what? This is actually the wrap-up of season number one of the show. We went from the memoirs of Gabrielle Hamilton in her blood, bones and butter, which is even more poignant now that her restaurant prune is closed and with that the end of an era from there we turned back the clock to world war ii britain and lord Wilton's ministry of food with the thrilling book eggs or anarchy by william sitwell and from there back to the 21st century with michael Pollan's cooked a natural history of transformation which is a formidable apology of food journalism done properly proving how food studies can also be a hot blockbuster ticket if you know how to sell it and do a good job at making it accessible yet 
substantial. With John Dickey's Delizia, the epic story of the Italians and their food, we were transported to the cultural history of one of the world's most loved cuisines and the stories of migration, cultural clash, heritage, pride and appropriation, all in one loud and exciting book, a seat has to be. In episode 5, B. Wilson's award-winning The Way We Eat Now, Strategies for Eating in a World of Change, gave us a masterclass in food policy, literacy, ethics, macroeconomics and politics that masterfully wraps up with very down-to-earth actions and changes that individuals like you and me can take to regain some control on the impact that food choices have for the world and for our health. In the same line, Empires of Food, Feast, Famine and the Rise and Fall of Civilizations by even Digi Fraser and Andrew Remus makes the argument that most civilizations throughout history have fallen largely because of the flaws in their food systems and that their decline actually follows pretty much the same pattern that we seem to have embraced. But they also show clear ways in which we can create better solutions to address increasing demand for food food, managing natural resources, and fixing the global food economy. Changing years and storylines on episode 7, I took upon the challenge of dissecting Caroline Crossmeyer's Making Sense of Taste, Food and Philosophy, which I think is one of the most challenging scripts I've ever made. But the book itself does a great job at reminding us how we have trained ourselves for thousands of years to deliberately learn to attach meaning, morals, and ideologies to the way we perceive food through our senses. And next, Pete Brown's The Apple Orchard, the story of our most English fruit, is a truly enjoyable book that introduces us to the wondrous universe of traditional English orchards, a delicate man and nature-made ecosystem where not only apple trees but insects and humans work together to produce one of history's most desired, feared and worshipped of all fruits, apples. And my favorite aspect of this book is really the rich cultural history of traditions, rituals, and the whole community life attached to farming in England. Episode 9, A Short History of Drunkness, How, Why, Where, and When Humankind Has Gotten Merry from the Stone Age to the Present by Mark Forsyth is a fun, witty, and most enjoyable study of the meanings, functions, and uses we've bestowed upon alcohol that takes us into a wild historical journey and into different cultures, places, and times where alcohol shaped the fate of humans in such a profound way that it still echoes to this very day. And of course, no better way to wrap up this season than with this book, An Edible History of Humanity by Tom Standage. Hungry Books is a podcast I have long desired to produce. And little did I know that a global pandemic, lockdown and a postgrad were going to collide together, slowing things down a little bit. But I delivered what I hope was a series of round and consistently inquisitive episodes featuring 10 top shelf works that I'm absolutely sure they will enrich your life. And I'm very excited to bring many books, stories and adventures. Thank you. Thank you so much for following this show, for your words of encouragement and appreciation. I really treasure them. Remember, you can always connect with me on social media. Find me on Instagram as at Hungry Books Podcast. Or you can reach out to me via email if you write me to hello at pasachipotle.com. Ahead for us on season two, I have for you cheeses, potatoes, 
the history of cooking, chocolate, royal feasts, stories of mafiosos and lemons, heritage Jewish food, and many, many more delicious episodes. In the meantime, come with me and cross over to Pasichipotle Podcast to get your foodie fix and enjoy more stories over there. Until season two of Hungry Books, take care, my friends, and more importantly, stay hungry. <laughs>